Are the guys in the middle ruining the economy? I'm Emily Stewart, and I write for Vox about business and the economy. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I have a real love-hate relationship with Amazon. Have you ever wondered how Amazon gets your packages to you so quickly? I'm not going to lie. It is really nice to be able to order basically anything I could ever dream of in a couple of clicks and have it land on my doorstep a day or two later. Hundreds of thousands of packages are shipped from our fulfillment centers to your front door. And it's all because of our amazing associates. It also makes me feel like a jerk. Amazon is not good for the planet or for workers. And I am perfectly capable of buying most things in a physical store. Half of the stuff I buy on Amazon, I don't even need anyway. And I definitely never need it in two days. Amazon is part of the middleman economy, the subject of a new book by Catherine Judge. She's a professor at Columbia Law. In her book, Direct, she looks at the growing role intermediaries play in our economy in ways that can be less than ideal. Think DoorDash or Seamless or Walmart or even real estate agents. Sometimes they're helpful. Other times they add a lot of unnecessary costs and time. And they wind up having more power than they should. I talk with Catherine Judge about her middleman critique, which, according to her, stems from the 2008 financial crisis. Back then, a lot of middlemen in housing and in finance mucked up the whole economy. We also talk about her proposed solution, that consumers should try to buy more goods directly from the source. Personally, I think that sounds like a nice fix, but how realistic is it? Hey, Catherine, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So your book lays out a case against the quote-unquote middleman economy. How exactly do you define that? That's a great question. So, of course, the middleman economy is different than just middlemen. Middlemen are the connectors. They facilitate the flow of goods, the flow of money. They're absolutely critical to the modern economy. What I'm really focused on is a more recent development over the last few decades of the growth of incredibly large middlemen who both feed and are really fed by these increasingly long and increasingly complex supply chains. How we got here, how we had these increasingly large middlemen, how they grew in power, how they're exercising their power, the benefits they bring, but also all of the costs that arise from the opacity and fragility of this new system that we are now living in. So to kind of ground this a little bit, can you provide some examples specifically of who and what you are talking about? Of course. So some of the most salient examples are retail middlemen. So if we think about Amazon and Walmart, they've been the two leaders on the Fortune 500 for the last couple of years. They're the biggest employers, biggest revenue generators in the country. And if we think about the scale of those entities, you think about when Walmart sells a good, it needs a lot of that product. Well, in demanding so much scale, Part of what happens is suddenly you have these companies that used to be these U.S. manufacturers that are in some ways required in order to meet the cost demands and scale demands that Walmart puts on them to suddenly shift production abroad. And what we see is not there's just a shift of production abroad, but over time, that very production process becomes actually a multi-stage, multi-continent undertaking. And so in this pursuit of what seems like efficiency gains, what you actually have is a fundamental change in how goods are made, where it's going across multiple different nodes, each providing kind of just what it can do most cheaply. Mm -hmm. You talk about Walmart and you talk about Amazon as well a lot in the book. Do you see them as the same? Because, you know, obviously Walmart brick and mortar, Amazon online, but Walmart is also increasingly online. How do you think about them? I think there's actually very meaningful differences between Amazon and Walmart. And I think understanding those differences are critical when we're trying to figure out what do we do about the potential threats posed by a particular middleman. On the other hand, 
right now, we tend to look at these different middlemen as different. We focus on what Amazon is doing as the world's largest online retailer, what the distinct role of Walmart as just this incredible big box store. We look at banks, what they're doing is completely different. We look at mutual funds, what they're doing is completely different. We look at Cargill as like this food middleman. Well, what they're doing is completely different. And there's differences across all of these domains that are really important to take into account. But actually, if we look across each of these different domains, there's also incredible similarities. There's incredible similarities in the way we've had the growth of these increasingly large middlemen and the way the commodification and scale then leads to longer supply chains and how we've, in each of these different areas, lost meaningful information, lost connection, lost the ability to create accountability and actually introduced new sources of fragility. So the differences are key, but I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned by starting to understand the similarities as well. So one thing I kind of noticed in reading the book is that you kind of talk about Etsy and Amazon differently. And I guess my question is how different actually are they really? So I think that they are different, obviously, as reflected in the book, but the degree to which they are different has sadly, I think, reduced over time. When Etsy started off, it was very committed to creating a space that was supportive of creators. Mm -hmm. That's the way that it distinguished itself. And it really limited the type of sellers that would have access to its platform. So it really was a way for small-scale, small production makers to stand out and to connect in a more personal way with the person to whom they're selling a good. Mm -hmm. And I think partly because of choices management has made and competitive pressures and a desire to scale, which is not always consistent with potentially other values of sustainability, we've seen that they've shifted their business model in a really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. That being said, Etsy still gives sellers more autonomy, and there's still meaningfully more transparency and connection between the sellers and the buyers than there is on Amazon. It controls so much of the selling environment in which sellers are operating. And a lot of the personal connections that are still possible, even if not always there on Etsy, aren't as possible on Amazon. So a lot of the book is really saying we have this extreme hyper-intermediated economy on one side. There's like the true direct on the other. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the life that we lead is in the gray space in between, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not about we should be one extreme or the other. But generally speaking, there'd be a lot of benefits if we rebalance a little bit towards direct from the hyper-intermediated world that we're in. So, like, where does a Facebook play into this then? Like, a Facebook marketplace, right? Like, Facebook, I can think for a lot of reasons, is bad. But in this sense, if you want people to have more connection with each other and sell directly to each other and talk to each other, isn't Facebook good? Or where do you place Facebook? I think the Facebook ecosystem is an embodiment of both the benefits and the drawbacks of this new intermediate world. So if we think about intermediaries and middlemen making our life easier— Facebook does make a lot of things easier. Yeah, We can put one post out and say like, oh, we had a new baby or like happy birthday or here's how I'm feeling today. And suddenly friends around the world can get that message. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, and this is true with intermediaries generally, when we used to call a friend or sit down for coffee and we would be directly connecting with that friend, now there's not only a screen, but there's this website and layout that is controlled and shaped by Facebook that is mediating our connection and also creating a level of separation. And so part of what's really interesting as you study middlemen and intermediaries is, yes, they connect, but in the process of connecting, they separate and they change the nature of the relationships that we have. You were inspired in part by the 2008 financial crisis. How so? What's the connection there? Yeah, so that's really where a lot of my work as a law professor started out. So I teach at Columbia, and I'd actually been a practicing attorney during the 2007 and 2008 financial crisis. I saw a lot of friends who were laid off. My sister was an architect, was not only out of work, but everybody she went to school with was also out of work. And I realized we didn't have good answers for what caused it or how to prevent it. So a lot of what motivated my decision to become a law professor to begin with was trying to understand these really difficult questions of how did we get here and how can we avoid getting here again? 
And of course, part of what I realized over time is as bad as things look from my little perch, that the effect of the financial crisis not only hurt professionals, but it had far, far greater pains and longer lasting pains on really those who are least able to endure those challenges. So the racial wealth gap got bigger, the racial housing gap got even bigger, and those who stayed out of the workforce really suffered the most. And when I really dove into the question of how did we end up with so much financial fragility, part of what I saw is that we had, again, these two different phenomenon. We used to have community banks and they really used relationships to make lending decisions. And then there was suddenly this massive consolidation where the biggest banks were playing a much, much bigger role in the overall financial system. And they did so by using standardization and that led to securitization and helped facilitate these really long and complex supply chains where money going into American homes might be coming from retail investors or people using pension plans in Japan or in Germany. And what I realized is that system seemed to create efficiencies. It made it so there was actually a lot more people who were able to afford homes or seemed to be able to afford homes in the short run. But it also introduced a lot more fragility. And it meant that once like things started to go bad, nobody had the information. Go back to the Fed minutes, for example, from 2007 and 2008. And it's over a year between when the financial crisis starts and when Lehman explodes. But they're honest. They can't figure out how the risks are actually allocated. So they don't understand how best to address the challenges they're facing. And there's real parallels between the challenges that they were facing in 2007 and 2008 and the lack of information and how that lack of information made it hard for them to know how to respond. And what we're seeing right now, where there's supply chain fragilities, the Fed first kept assuming, oh, well, they're going to correct themselves. All this inflationary pressure is going to be transitory. But of course, they were a lot bigger than anybody realized. Right. I mean, right now, the amount that we are talking about supply chains and realizing how much that we have not thought about this stuff is genuinely wild. It's actually been amazing for me. It's funny. I sold the idea for the book in January 2020. And one of my core claims at the time was that I spent all this time studying kind of these capital supply chains and how they got more complex and how that introduced fragility. And then I looked at what is happening in the real economy. I was like, no, these supply chains are far more fragile than anybody realizes. And then during the early stages of the pandemic, actually supply chains seemed to hold up better than anyone had expected. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I might actually have to go back and revisit and understand where I went wrong. But sadly for the world, turns out I was not wrong. They were as fragile as they appeared. Right. One area you focus a lot on in the book is on real estate agents. Why them? And what role do they play in the housing market specifically that you find problematic? So real estate agents are just a great example of how middlemen come in because initially they're providing a lot of value. But over time, all of the attributes that make them so useful also give them outsized power that they then use to really entrench a system that benefits them at the expense of the people they're meant to serve. So if you think about real estate agents, long before the internet, they created the multiple listing service. And that was a really great service at the time. They created this massive database where all the sellers who used an agent could put their home in this database and then it would be in front of all the potential buyers and buyers could go to an agent that would have the source, that would have all the potential homes for sale. And if you think about the alternatives at the time, open houses and classified ads, this was a much better system. Mm -hmm. But part of what's key now is they put this system in place And even when you're going to Redfin or Zillow or what seem like these alternative sources of getting information, it's still based on the MLS. And those multiple listing services are still controlled by full-service real estate agents. And so I go through the mechanisms to which they've done that. But part of what we see is they use their control over that database and how valuable inclusion is to really penalize all of the innovative discount brokers who are coming in and saying, hey, now we have the internet. It should be a lot easier for buyers to find a home without having to pay two and a half or 3% to a real estate agent. And how they've really used both legal changes. I mean, a number of different states have actually prohibited rebates that allow buyers to choose a lower cost option. And the other reason I think real estate is such an important area to study is in contrast to the wealthy who have a lot of their money in stocks and bonds, Real estate is the number one source of wealth for the median, typical American family. 
So in contrast to another country where you're oftentimes paying, you know, one and a half to two and a half percent, the fact that Americans are on average still paying five percent comes directly out of the well-being and wealth of middle-class families. And so it's a great way of studying, yes, individually they're providing a valuable service, Mm -hmm. but simultaneously they are entrenching an outdated and overpriced structure for the sale of residential real estate. I mean, I do... (laughs) I'm a renter, but even sometimes I, I find it when I go to rent an apartment and somebody opens the door for me, a real estate agent, and then suddenly somehow I owe them money in a way that's genuinely <laughs> not ideal. I was going to say, New York's bad on the rental side, too. Other cities aren't as much so, but as soon as new middlemen come in, they purport to provide conveniences, and in some ways they do, but they add a lot of costs that are sometimes not fully justified. Yeah, New York is special in that every single real estate transaction feels like a true scam. (laughs) I did want to talk a little bit about what I found is a tension and what we've been talking about is what is a middleman and what is market concentration? Like, I want to go to the store to buy groceries and not go to every individual seller. Part of the reason that Amazon is popular is that people like it, but it also has a huge amount of market power. So... What's the issue in your mind? Is it concentration? Is it something else? So I would say it's both. And this is why we do need kind of robust tools, and we have robust tools for trying to address concentration. What's really important and distinctive when we're talking about middlemen is it's not just about looking at a snapshot of today, of how big, how concentrated is the industry where this middleman is operating. It's trying to understand how all of those attributes that might give them some concentration today are very likely to make them even more powerful in the future. And so that if we want to think not only about what we want right now, but what we want the world to look like 5, 10, 20 years from now, we need to be thinking right now about how do we make sure both through kind of top-down antitrust enforcement, but also kind of bottom-up support, how do we create an alternative ecosystem. So people want to opt out, they can opt out. Because you're certainly right. I mean, a lot of the reason all of these intermediaries, these middlemen come to power is they're making our lives easier. They're providing us a lot of choices. And so there's this very difficult balance, and I think tension is not inaccurate, between kind of the desire to make things as easy as possible and then the way that feeds in to an overall structure that might have a bunch of collateral consequences that we don't fully appreciate, that we don't fully see, Mm -hmm. and that aren't necessarily consistent with our deeper values. Right. I mean, this is something I think about a lot, even with Walmart to a certain extent, right? You can say, yes, it helps create a lot of lower prices, let's say, for consumers. At the same time, part of the way that it does this is by paying its workers very little. And that's genuinely a thing that I think about and struggle with a lot. And I think it's a core tension. And again, a lot of these tensions are not things where there's easy answers, but instead trying to put on display all of the different costs. And let's think about them in a cohesive fashion, because very often we're not. We kind of just put on our little hat, which is our consumer hat. Mm -hmm. And we've been taught that when we wear our little consumer hat, like we're supposed to want the cheapest price possible for whatever good we're getting. And then maybe it's only when we go to the polls and we vote that we should suddenly care about well-being in all of these other ways. But we're seeing is there has been at least somewhat of a shift, a slow shift, but a shift towards people wanting to kind of bring more of those values when they're buying goods. And part of what we're also starting to appreciate is whether we want to admit it or not, the decisions that we make as a consumer affect the structure of the society we live in and the well-being of others and even our own well-being, oftentimes as workers or as members of a community, and that there can be very real trade-offs there that we oftentimes are not thinking about or where we're making a decision that's focusing on what's salient, what's right in front of us, as opposed to, well, what does this actually mean in terms of the exploitation of workers, the exploitation of the environment, the ability for there to be meaningful work in the community where I reside? Mm -hmm. And we're blinded to a lot of those effects because of the structure, both the size of the middlemen, but also the length and complexity of the supply chains that put the people and places affected in these far off lands that we don't have to think about.
How did we get to this place where our economy is full of middlemen? And why is that such a problem? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I know I shouldn't use Amazon, and I bought something off of Amazon yesterday. Just full stop. So I do think it's fair to say that at face value... Our economy is filled with intermediaries. Nobody buys a car directly from the manufacturer, a house from the owner. I bought the pair of earrings yesterday from God knows where through Amazon. How did we get here? Like, how do these platforms or these companies or these businesses, these systems, cement their own power in a way and really entrench themselves as intermediaries? I think it goes back to the point you've made. They're providing an incredible selection and a range of conveniences that we want, particularly in the short run. I mean, it's really interesting because I've been accused both of being overly generous and overly critical (laughs) of intermediaries at the same time because I do think that they provide very real value Mm -hmm. and that we can't try to kind of idealize this world without them, without understanding the incredible value that they do provide and the way that they meaningfully make our lives easier and can make goods seem a lot cheaper or actually cheaper by changing how they are made. I shop at Amazon too. I try not to all the time, but I'm a working mother of two and it's really hard not to. And the book explores why the rise of Amazon also makes it increasingly hard for us to opt out even when we want to Mm -hmm. because that outside option starts getting more difficult to be able to access. And like, I think that's where policymakers have to play a role in helping to make sure we have real choice. And so part of what the book shows is the way that they've grown is not because they were kind of started off with these like evil intent of like taking over the economy. No, they grew in power because they were providing a very real service. But in the process of providing that service, they're very often also erecting blinders that limit us and our ability to see the effects of the decisions that we're making. So we see what we're taking home, we see the price we're paying, Mm -hmm. but suddenly the implications of that decision on the resilience of the system or on others is systematically blinded to us. So of course we're going to make the decisions that in the short run seem easiest and make most sense to us. You know, we have a lot of research in behavioral economics at this point that says salience matters a lot. Mm -hmm. And so the point of direct is to show how they are providing very real services, but to show how they're in providing those services, simultaneously creating an ecosystem that does provide real benefits, but oftentimes has costs. Costs to us in the future, costs to the stability of the system, and in kind of facilitating more exploitation Mm -hmm. than we might be willing to allow if we actually saw the impact of the decisions that we were making. But do you think that if consumers knew more, they would do better? The long and short of it is I don't think we actually know, right? Mm -hmm. In part because we are so systematically blinded. Even when we want to know, we can't know. I mean, I remember one time there was like, you know, you always see these pictures of farmers on the back of cracker boxes and cereal boxes. Mm -hmm. And when we had kids, we're just eating an absurd number of Cheerios. So I like emailed the company. I was like, where are you actually grown? Because there's this pretty picture of a farmer. But like, of course, they couldn't or wouldn't tell me. You really can't find out even if you want to. 
And if we think about a lot of the products that a lot of us consume every day, I mean, something like cocoa. I love chocolate. And it was really heartbreaking for me to realize the amount of child labor Mm -hmm. and the incredible poverty that exists in the major cocoa growing regions. Mm -hmm. And so right now you have this like very small handful of niche companies that say, we're going to create a really high-end product and really create visibility But for the great majority of us, we're still reaching to the chocolate bar at the checkout counter. Mm -hmm. And we really aren't paying attention to the implications, even at times the human rights abuses that might be involved. And so whether people make are going to different decisions, it's hard to know. But I think there's a possibility. One, we're already seeing a lot of it. We're seeing a demand for goods that are organic. We're seeing some good demand for fair trade. But the challenge is those labels actually don't tell us as much as we think that they are supposed to tell us. And I think a lot of us suspect that, right? Right. And so we don't necessarily want to pay a premium because I'm like, I don't know who's really going to benefit from this premium. Like how much of it's really getting to the farmer and how much of it is another middleman (laughs) with a really good marketing device. And so part of what the book talks about direct is the cornerstone of the solution. Cornerstone is a very small part, very small part of a much bigger edifice. It's not saying we should go directly for everything that we want. But that process of connecting directly with the creator or with the grower for at least a small chunk of the goods that we consume does make those people in those places salient in a different way. And it helps to remind us that every single time we're putting on an item of clothing or putting dinner on the table for a family, that there were farmers, there were growers, there were workers at every stage along the way that were affected. And right now, we think we've just been systematically blinded to that and encouraged not to think about that. So I think it's a long road to hoe, but I'm certainly not ready to give up hope Mm -hmm. that people would make different decisions Partly because we see even when people are voting, people are oftentimes not voting in a way that maximizes their economic well-being. There's a bunch of other values that are shaping how they vote. And as a practical matter, to bring about the type of change that many people want to see, we have to take off our voting hat and also bring those considerations and values to the table in the other roles that we're playing. You talk a little bit in the book about how middlemen kind of manipulate us through dark patterns online, right, where we are being nudged in certain directions to make certain choices on the internet, through loss leaders at the grocery store. So I get in the store and I want one thing and I buy 90 things. How does that work in general in kind of entrenching these guys' power? So what it partly reflects is the asymmetry in power. And I love that you just use that term. Because again, like you say, in the short run, it feels like middlemen are serving us, right? Mm -hmm. There's like a long weekend coming up. The beer is on sale. We want to hang out at the beach. That looks like exactly what we want to do. But they know more than we do about our behavioral patterns, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one of, going back to your early point about Walmart versus Amazon, Walmart's getting very sophisticated with data. And many stores that you'd visit in real life are doing a better job with tracking and monitoring. So they're increasing the wealth of data that they have available. But that's so easy for Amazon. Yes. And Amazon's employees have bragged about the fact when you log on to the Amazon website, you are seeing a store that is custom built just for you. So on the one hand, it makes your life so much easier. You have these goods that are exactly the goods that you're most likely to like potentially want. On the other hand, how much you actually want is not a fixed thing. Mm -hmm. It's constantly changing. And so part of what they're doing is figuring out those things that are actually at the margin of the thing you, if you never knew about, you'd be very happy not having in your life. But once you know about it, it suddenly seems like, oh, no, you need that too. And so part of what I really explore is how the aggregation of data and far more sophisticated systems for utilizing that data to create both real and virtual environments that push us in particular directions that are not completely outside of what we want, but are consistently in the direction of more consumption rather than less, tend to, again, bias us in a particular way. So it's not saying that we're powerless, but that within the range of control that we do have, we are being systematically shifted in ways that are serving them and probably in the long run are not consistent with our own long well-being. And there's a lot of research suggesting that. 
Well, and there's just also so much of, like, we don't know what these people know about us to a certain extent. Like, they know more about us than we probably know about ourselves in terms of, like, what we'll buy and stuff. Yeah, and that's because they don't just have your data. They have everybody else's data. And I think that's one of the interesting things. I mean, I think originally the whole idea of the Internet, there was this original dream that it would disrupt the need for intermediaries, disrupt the need for middlemen, because now we could have direct connections all over the place. And we do see areas where that is happening, platforms that are facilitating more direct connection. But it also means that when you have somebody like Amazon that comes in and is monitoring not just all of your purchasing experiences, but the purchasing patterns of people who are purchasing things that are similar to what you're choosing to buy, Mm -hmm. well, they then know what else to pop up. So, I mean, there were plenty of times during the pandemic when like the last thing I wanted to do was to go to Amazon or to buy anything more online or have to have anything shipped to me. But I had a three-year-old and a six-year-old and my husband and I were like really doing everything we could just to scrape by. And so like the little like grow your own butterfly kit that seems like this great way to, to keep them entertained and engaged suddenly looks like something like I just have to have, even though there's butterflies out there. We could have just gone for an extra walk. Mm-hmm. I mean, Do middlemen ultimately make us worse consumers? I suspect so. As an academic, I can't say that we have the research to be able to support that. But this is part of the tension that you mentioned early on, because you were saying, well, this is what we want. We want unlimited choice. We want low prices. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that is always what we want. And part of what you can probe is, is that the way that you act in every single environment? Or are there environments where actually a different set of preferences come out. Mm -hmm. So like when you go to a farmer's market, if you go to a cafe that like a friend runs, what are the places where actually part of what you're bringing to the table, part of what you care about is something more than just getting the absolute best deal possible or getting as much as you possibly can? And part of what we realize is actually our preferences, I think, are much more complex, are much more diverse, Mm -hmm. but we've been trained And we have environments that further acculturate us to having certain types of preferences in particular types of settings, and then somehow kind of like turning those off and shifting when we're with family or when we're with friends or when we're playing other roles. So it's hard to know, but it's hard to imagine the degree of consumerism, which is not, again, all bad by any means, but the particular ways it's become manifest without the rise of this middleman economy. So one thing... You talk about this quite a bit in the book. The main pillar of a lot of your solutions is that people should buy directly from different sources, that people should go direct when they can. That's not an option available to everyone, right? Like, it's difficult, and people need things fast, people need things cheap, people don't have time necessarily to go to the farmer. Like, that would be lovely and also is just not real. How do you grapple with that, that some of this is something that like somebody like me, I live in New York City, I'm relatively well off, maybe I could do this. But most members of my family back in Wisconsin are not going to be able to do this and are not going to want to do this, to be honest. Yeah. And so I believe that by studying extremes, we actually understand like how to navigate the territory and all of the different values that are at stake, which oftentimes get elided from view in the current system. So the goal is definitely not direct in all circumstances or even direct in that many circumstances. Direct is instead saying, if we do it once in a while, Mm -hmm. we're reminded there's people in places and we don't necessarily think about that otherwise. And related to that, it can be on the opposite side of once we understand all these different consequences, we can figure out kind of both individually, but also through government and through policy and as a society, what is the balance that we actually want? And because right now we've tended to be moving in the direction of larger middlemen and longer supply chains, but there's also already a counter trend. We already see Shopify popping up. We already see actually a statistically significant increase in farmers markets across the country. You know, it's not just like in New York City and San Francisco, it's across the country. And actually, I think oftentimes it's people who might be in Wisconsin who most want some of those platforms as a way of connecting directly. So if you think about something like Kickstarter, I actually talked to like a number of creators in states in the Midwest who did Kickstarter campaigns. Campaigns, And then suddenly found they got support from so many different other places. 
And more than one of them said, like, I don't live in Brooklyn. They didn't feel like they were necessarily around a creative environment and people supported their creativity. But part of what was interesting for them is even like a small campaign, whether it's to write a graphic novel or to have an actual recording session in a studio, allowed them to connect with their future customers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they were neighbors and sometimes they were complete strangers. And both of them felt really meaningful. And it's amazing also how often the creators were also people who back other projects because they felt so good every time they were supported that they wanted to support others. So I would say a lot of it can be smaller scale. Mm -hmm. But the other point that you're raising, which is different than just who can do this on the consumption side, is who benefits on the other side. And so another core point of the book is we live in an incredibly hierarchical and segregated world, right? So if direct is really all about local, we could just kind of perpetuate all of the hierarchies that currently exist. And this is where you do have some really inspiring creators, oftentimes whose roots span different countries with their own experience and span different cultures and are figuring out these really innovative ways of not just bringing products to American or European consumers, but also creating a structure where they actually see the people and the places that are affected and where that transparency is being used to help support more sustainable modes of farming and in other situations provide healthcare or access to benefits that workers might not otherwise have. So part of it is, I do think technology can play a role. We're seeing technology play a role Mm -hmm. in enabling new types of connection. And again, that's gonna be on the margins. It's not saying we have to like abandon Walmart or abandon Amazon. But it creates that outside option. Mm -hmm. And by having policymakers help to create that outside option, we don't have as much kind of ability to have the big players exploit those positions in ways that are more troubling, whether it's to sellers or consumers or to workers. This is going to sound a little bit weird, but this sounds a little bit like Web 3E in a way, right? A lot of the crypto people, a lot of the Web 3 people envision a bit of what you're talking about here, right? Where it's all decentralized, everybody's connecting with each other and there's nobody in the middle. Like, have, have you thought about that at all? I've thought a lot about it because, I, you know, my space is financial regulation, right? So two things on that. One, when you look closely, there's very often a lot of intermediaries who are getting very, very rich. So the claims of decentralized finance relative to the realities, there's oftentimes a big gap. And another thing is that there's a lot of situations where we actually want a couple of intermediaries. Yes. And so one of the things I explore in the book as a prime example of this is we had all this hype around peer-to-peer lending, right? It's like, I'm going to loan money directly to you. We don't need a bank. It's going to be this great new world. This is post-financial crisis. We don't like and trust those banks anyways. So this is going to be great. And then what we saw is that like individuals are insanely bad at figuring out whether or not another individual is credit worthy. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of loans that should not have been made that were made and that ended up defaulting and loss rates were huge. And just as problematically, there's a bunch of implicit and explicit biases that we as individuals bring to the table that suddenly translated into who we're willing to loan money to and affected loan terms in ways that exacerbated a lot of the differences we don't want. So this tension, it's not direct all the time at all costs. It's like, let's understand the benefits of direct, which at times is something like human connection and that you have a different and broader set of values you're bringing to the table from something like a Kickstarter campaign By contrast, if you're loaning money with the expectation of money in the future, Mm -hmm. it's a right for fraud. And as a practical matter, it never has brought out kind of touchy-feely connections. And it's not asking you to bring kind of a multi-dimensional rich part of yourself to the table. So that's not the place we want to go direct. And the last thing I would say about Web3, because we see this also with direct-to-consumer and a lot of the other areas, a lot of this is trying to respond to what I see and identify as the shortcomings of the middleman economy. Mm -hmm. So we think a lot of the hunger for these alternatives reflects the fact that people appreciate that there's fundamental deficiencies in who our economy is currently serving and how, and that there's a better way of doing things. So I think the motivation behind a lot of these moves is actually reflective of the problems that I'm identifying with the middleman economy. That being said, the way we create solutions is through incremental and sustainable ways of creating alternatives. And very often when you have a significant amount of venture capital money, for example, flowing to an industry, 
the pressure for growth is going to be fundamentally inconsistent with a more sustainable, more human-oriented model, which doesn't mean there's not a place for that. But we have to understand if the virtue of direct is a meaningful connection between consumer and producer and a responsiveness of each to the other and a relationship that grows between those two, when a venture capitalist comes in and is providing not just a little, but a huge amount of that funding, that's a huge third party in that relationship that's going to distort that relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's not always the wrong call, but there's significant trade-offs that's going to move that from the real virtues that can come, again, for the extreme direct. So in your mind, though, there is kind of like a balance here between like the economic realities that people live in day to day and that businesses are dealing with versus like our own kind of desires for connection. But then is the argument for going more direct if and when you can always kind of not an emotional one, but maybe an emotional one, a connection one, and not an economic kind of drive? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the interesting things is I actually think sometimes cutting out middlemen can save money. And this was like why I spent so much time on real estate. It's very often we have these incredibly entrenched regimes that actually aren't efficient. And middlemen, while they can create a lot of value, can also extract a lot of value from an exchange. So one is if we can create things that are larger scale— than just the direct, mm -hmm. but that are more localized or are global, but where there's fewer intermediaries, you can actually get greater wealth sharing for both the producers and for the consumers and more accountability. And the other thing I would note is one of the real challenges is this idea of like who we are as consumers is apart from who we are in all of our other roles, right? Mm. So if we're feeding into a system where we get things really cheaply, but that is also fundamentally changing the nature and availability and quality of the work that surrounds us, we might, or other people that we love or care about or know, are going to have potentially different professional opportunities and different challenges that they're going to face along those fronts that can also make a really big difference. I mean, if you look at the recent work that Gallup's been doing, one of the th things that we see is lack of meaningful work is one of the things that can contributing to unhappiness. Mm -hmm. And if the middleman economy means you're doing a tiny little slice and you're not seeing any of the other people that are affected by your work, it's harder for it to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get that. It just it kind of occurs to me that for the average consumer right now dealing with inflation and bills and the world feeling like it's on fire, how much can we be expected to then be like, oh, I got to be a little bit more responsible as somebody who would like to be more responsible? Yeah. So let me be honest, like the primary quote of the book is not telling consumers what they ought to do. It's saying like, here's choices that you can understand differently. Uh -huh. But a lot of it is also really directed at policymakers and at firms, right? So part of what we saw is we had this huge financial crisis because we had this incredible availability of credit, but it was overly available because it was built on fundamentally shaky and fragile foundations. Mm -hmm. And I'd say we're seeing the same thing right now. So there's a whole variety of different factors that are feeding into the inflationary pressures. But one of the core challenges is we built an overly fragile regime. Mm -hmm. And so the low prices that we enjoyed, I would say were artificially low mm -hmm. because we didn't actually have companies that were investing in resilience. But instead, they were making a much of decisions about production processes mm -hmm. in ways that lowered prices in the short run, but created the possibility of fragility in future periods. And now we're suffering from it. Right. And the trade-off that we've decided to make in banking is we still want there to be credit available, but we're ready to have it be slightly less available in good times so that way there's more of it in bad times and we have a healthier and more stable system. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that's actually exactly the trade-off we ought to be making right now in the real economy which doesn't mean we don't need goods to be affordable, but we also need to make sure that we have baby formula every single time you go to the store. And that might mean paying slightly more mm -hmm. during those good times. So that way we actually have structures in place that are less fragile and where there's enough understanding of how the whole system is working, mm -hmm. that when things go wrong, you can work together to minimize the effect of the disruption rather than having everybody just look out for themselves, which feeds even greater dysfunction mm -hmm. and the problem grows. Yeah. I mean, do you think now, obviously, that 
everybody has been forced to see what the supply chain is and is not, that we are potentially at a moment where companies and where policymakers and where government really takes the time to invest in fixing this stuff? Or is it just a situation where like, oh, well, it kind of got a little bit better, so we move on. Like after the financial crisis, there were some changes. Do we change anything now? That is the $20 million credit (laughs) question or whatever the value is supposed to be. But that is the big question. And I think that is the exact pivot point that we have to understand we are facing is there's a lot of powerful players that benefited from having the status quo as it was and that very well might continue to profit and gain from allowing there to be fragility because they aren't bearing the brunt of that fragility. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we have to figure out is individually, but more importantly, as firms, but also as, as policymakers are evaluating decisions, is what can we do to create an overall ecosystem Mm -hmm. where the system doesn't break down as often Mm -hmm. or the costs of that breakdown aren't as severe or not as unfairly allocated. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the challenge that we're facing right now. So this is not a call to people who are already really struggling. And a lot of people right now are really struggling to say, well, you should struggle more and you should give up more to invest in the well-being of a bunch of other people but to instead reveal the decisions we made as a society and that policymakers oftentimes made without there being adequate accountability or transparency or understanding because there were only a limited number of people in the room. And a lot of those people in the room were the middlemen rather than the consumers and investors and real individuals whose decisions they were affecting to say, look, we can create a better balance. I mean, banking is far from perfect. Mm -hmm. And outside the banking sector, we have a lot going on that's pretty crazy. But I would say that the banking sector is meaningfully more resilient than it was 15 years ago and that we are all better off because of it. And so what we have is a rebalancing. And really, we might actually all be better off through some rebalancing. When we come back from one last short break, what fixes does Catherine Judge propose for us? So I kind of want to spend the last part of this talking about the fixes that you propose. So you lay out five principles, kind of get us out of the situation. Can you talk through some of the ones that you think are the most important in that and why? Yeah. So there's five different kind of principles. Uh But as I point out, principles are not rules and they're not fixes. These are kind of like core lessons that individuals, but also policymakers and companies can use to kind of figure out how do we rebalance. The first, which I think is one of the most important, is just that intermediation matters. And that term intermediation can be such a scary and weird term, Mm -hmm. but it goes back to where you started. And that's the difference between the individual middleman and this middleman economy, kind of the structures that are created and all of the different layers that oftentimes like separate us from the places that our money is flowing when we invest, but also the people and the places that are affected and are playing a role in all of the goods that we consume. And I think we spend a lot of time thinking about the actual goods Mm -hmm. and a lot less time thinking about the significance of that through whom decision. And part of the idea is that spending a little time on that through whom decision can actually bring us more of what we want out of a purchase or potentially out of an investment. Mm -hmm. Another one that I like is just follow the fees. (laughs) And the idea there is we all are going to rely on middlemen. It's not an idea that we should get rid of middlemen. We're going to use them. But if we're going to rely on them, we really need to know which ones to trust, which ones to avoid, and kind of like how much to trust the ones that we are using. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we want to understand a little bit about how they make their money and what their business model looks like. Because that's going to help us see where there might be conflicts between what's best for them and what's best for us. And as a practical matter, 
some of those trade-offs means paying a little more today for something that's going to better value for you long-term. My first job was to be a stockbroker, actually. Like, I've been a women's studies major. I was pre-med. I knew nothing about any of this. And I became a stockbroker because I realized I knew nothing. So that was how I was going to learn about this, right? Mm -hmm. And there's really two models in that space. One is you pay real money up front for somebody who provides a very good analysis of what your financial position is and how to allocate your investments and the investment rate you need to get where you want to be. And the other is I provide a bunch of services to you and it feels free to you because you never write me a check. You never actually pay for anything. But guess what? I put you in a bunch of investments (laughs) where the people running those investments kick off money to me in exchange for flowing that money your way. And guess what? You don't feel that at all in the short run. And even in the long run, if the market's doing well, you're not going to notice it. But as a practical matter, the costs to you are very significant. Mm -hmm. And so part of why you want to pay attention to this is you can just make better decisions for yourself longer term when you're really spending a little bit of time figuring out, like, who am I using? Why am I using them? And is there a better way to do this? Beyond, like, the individual consumer What role do policymakers need to play here? Because I think, I mean, they have to play the biggest role to a certain extent, or they should. They have to play the biggest role, and they are already playing a huge role. As a practical matter, the policies that we have set the rules of the game. And whether they intend to or not, policymakers far too often are helping to entrench systems that really benefit middlemen. And that's largely because middlemen have not only this control over this great infrastructure that they create, but they have information, they have expertise, they have a bunch of relationships that then they're using to contort policymaking in ways that really serve their own interests. Mm -hmm. And consumers are oftentimes not a voice in that conversation because they don't understand fully what's at stake. And so one of it is just helping say that follow-up fees idea is good for you as an individual. It's absolutely critical if you're a policymaker. If you're the SEC, if you're Congress, like you need to understand not just that lobbyists have alternative motives. Everybody knows that. You need to very specifically understand how the rules that are being debated shape and are going to influence the business model of the middlemen that are in front of you and the infrastructure surrounding kind of the environment where they're working. So middlemen are very, very good. They use their expertise to come up with very influential and believable stories about how a rule change that was meant to protect consumers is actually going to have all of these disastrous consequences. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, they're right. And so sometimes regulators are just captured. Sometimes policymakers care more about kind of their election campaign than serving the public good. But sometimes they also are just genuinely scared and uncertain. So they also have to pay attention to what's really going on. Another key thing for policymakers is to understand how to make sure we continue to have kind of an outside option. Mm -hmm. And so that one is, you know, just we have already this wonderful trend in recent years where we're starting to pay attention to antitrust again. Yes. And we're realizing that it's actually very important (laughs) to have robust antitrust enforcement that we hadn't focused on in a meaningful way for a period of time. And so it's inspiring for me to see Lena Khan heading the FDC, the initiatives that she has going. I mean, she has a new initiative looking at pharmacy benefit managers. We never even got to healthcare, but let me tell you, there's a lot of middlemen in healthcare who managed to make a lot of money. And so we're seeing kind of these really great efforts through antitrust and competition policy to say we need to have top-down checks which means we want to allow innovation, but we also need to check kind of like how power is being exercised. Mm -hmm. And so it's really sometimes new laws, but oftentimes going back to the origins of the legal scheme we have and making sure that we're honoring the rigor that Congress intended when they adopted those laws. Mm -hmm. But there's a flip side to that as well, because that's the top-down effort to promote competition. And that is this bottom-up effort. And again, part of what intermediaries do is they create great infrastructure, right? They help overcome those informational challenges and those logistical challenges. Keep referring to Amazon. Like, Amazon's great at getting me my package really quickly. Mm-hmm. And right now, the post office is making changes that go the opposite direction, at least some of the time. 
Post Office Inc. is trying hard. They've created some new local systems that are good. On the other hand, it used to be for first-class package. It had to get there in three days to be on time. Now it could be four or five days. And again, that's in part because they're facing financial constraints that are real. But we could make a decision as policymakers to say, you know, the goal shouldn't be to have the post office, like have its profit exceed all of its expenses of operating. And instead, we're willing to subsidize the post office because that makes it easier when people don't want to go to Amazon to have the ability not to go to Amazon Mm -hmm. because Amazon and Walmart have an incredible trucking system. They have an incredible warehouse system, but like small creators don't. And so it's not forcing people to make a different decision, but it's saying, well, the cost of making a different decision, both the financial cost, but also the inconvenience, we can reduce that through the policies that we have and creating infrastructure that makes it easier for people to go elsewhere. And so part of it is trying to understand how we reward innovation, but maintain an environment where there continues to be real choice and the ability to opt out when people want to. Yeah. Well, I was just in Colorado where there was an election happening. I was watching like the (laughs) local news and there was a commercial about some of the antitrust legislation coming up. And I was warned very much that my Amazon Prime was in trouble if that passed and if Amazon got any sort of checks on it. It was very funny. I was going to say, and I wonder who funded that. (laughs) I noted it at the time and I've forgotten. But but yeah, it was definitely like, oh, wow, it's like in live and like in front of me, all of this. So I guess to get to my last question here, and this is something I kind of have experienced in my own work where sometimes if ever I point out that consumers maybe need to do a little bit better, it's some of the meanest emails I've ever gotten. So when you think about your book and sort of the argument that you are laying out. How much of this do you think is an indictment of the consumer and really the extent to which people should be expected to make sacrifices, you know, to pay more, to wait longer, to just buy less in advance of the greater good? So it's a little bit of both. I mean, so one thing I have to say, I saw your article in Vox on the awful American consumer and absolutely loved it long before we'd scheduled this. And I think there's part of that, right? But the funny thing is, I'm awful. Mm -hmm. So part of this project was motivated the fact that like, I was constantly making decisions that were really hard for me to justify. As I started having kids, my time felt limited. And suddenly like I was exploiting people left and right. And I didn't see that. But as a practical matter, I knew that when I I was buying kind of a dollar fifty a piece little like onesies for my daughter. That like the conditions under which that cotton was grown and that the laborers involved were actually laboring were probably heartbreaking for me. And there was just this incredible tension. And I was like, why is it so hard for me when we're supposed to be in this advanced era to actually live in a way that does not feel fundamentally conflicted? Mm-hmm. So I guess it's both, yes, part of what I spend time on in the book is sometimes we do need to wait a little longer. Sometimes we need to have a little more patience. Sometimes we do need to be willing to spend a little more. As a practical matter, middlemen make our lives easier. And the more we opt for slightly shorter chains and the more we opt for slightly smaller players, some of that cost is going to sit with creators and some of that cost is going to sit with consumers. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I started to realize as well, that actually some of the things that feel like burdens no longer feel quite as much like burdens, right? Mm-hmm. And it's extreme and it's complete place of privilege to say this, but, you know, we joined this little CSA and it's the most inconvenient thing in the world. Wait, tell me what a CSA is. Yes, exactly. So a CSA is community-sponsored agriculture, right? So this is where you actually have a farm where you make a payment at the beginning of the year and then you get kind of whatever they happen to grow over the course of the year. And you don't really get to choose. You have to drive all the way to the farm during a designated time. And it's insanely inconvenient for us. It's like even more inconvenient for people who do not have the control over their work schedules that my husband and I enjoy or are dependent on public transportation, which oftentimes doesn't go to these areas, but also can just be incredibly meaningful. I mean, the community we've started to get to know around that farm has just been wonderful. The farmer himself, he's part of the community in so many different ways. At this point, like his daughter's babysat for us, his son mows our lawn. And you realize that actually, like a lot of the things that at first feel like these burdens and inconveniences can also be ways of helping us to kind of step out of a world 
where I think we've become overly accustomed to being catered to, Mm -hmm. overly accustomed to getting exactly what we want and when we want it in ways that actually bring out parts of me that aren't the best parts of me. And so I think part of it is, again, we're not going to do that for everything, right? Like most of what I get still comes through layers of intermediaries and is grown by farmers who I don't know. So it's not like that's how I'm getting most of my food. But it's that by doing that just for a little, little tiny bit of the food that I'm feeding my family, it fundamentally gets me thinking about food and the food ecosystem Mm -hmm. in a way that actually starts to change the decisions that I'm making. So I do think that consumers are partly like acculturated not to think about those things and to really prioritize convenience. And as long as we keep feeding those patterns, that hunger is going to grow in us forever more convenience. But I do think a lot of people are already starting to choose something different, at least some of the time. So we're seeing kind of this alternative ecosystem bubbling up. The different ways that we choose to engage seem to affect our well-being and how we feel about it afterwards. Right. So maybe the takeaway, at least like on a personal level, is try to be a medium, better consumer, at least a little bit of the time. I think that's a good takeaway. And realize, though, I would say this, if you just do it once in a while, Mm -hmm. you might find that there's benefits that you don't realize. Mm -hmm. And don't beat yourself up the rest of the time. I mean, beating ourselves up is not, I think, ever a good recipe. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.